So today I, I get the opportunity to continue a sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks, and it's a sermon series that we've simply been calling Counterweight. Counterweight. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, I'm very amazed at what God is doing in our community and what God has been doing in the people. I get a front row seat of the testimonies. I usually hear the testimonies first of what God is doing. And we've covered a lot of ground this, this year, and it's very important to me that we don't lose that momentum as we head into the holidays. And many of us know that going into the holidays, we just kind of give our permission, uh, ourselves some permission to just sort of check out on um, spiritual disciplines, to check out on doing the things that we know to do. The new year is right around the corner. We see the horizon of a fresh start, and that sort of lets us relax a little bit. You know, I could eat a little bit more than I should because, you know, I'm going to turn it around at the new year. You know, I can do this. I can indulge in this or that. I can just sort of relax because when the new year hits, man, I'm going to really turn it around. And many of us reach the new year and we don't turn anything around, you know, other than the, ca- the page on the calendar. So we're fooling ourselves. So I thought it very helpful and almost necessary to insert right before we get to our Advent series or our Christmas series, uh, a series that would focus us on the things that we need most from God. And we've called this series Counterweight simply because I believe that if we don't allow God to impose the counterweight of his stuff on the mess and on the systems of our lives, we simply won't make it. We will lack the fruitfulness that we need in order to move forward. We will lack the things that we need to live fruitful, uh, vibrant lives with Jesus Christ and vibrant lives with others. So we need God's counterweight to impose itself on the systems of our lives so that we can make it and so that we can thrive and not just survive. Any of you agree with that? I especially need those things, especially at this time of year. And God's counterweight keeps us steady. More than keeping us steady, it tips us in the right direction, and that's what we need. It's a weight that anchors our life with Jesus and our life with other people. Two weeks ago, we began this series by talking about the counterweight of contentment. In other words, not being swept away and carried away by comparison and this lack of of satisfaction and all of these things that sort of carry us away around this holiday season as we get, you know, overwhelmed with advertisements and reminders of what you don't have and what you think you need. Contentment is a counterweight that steadies us. Last week, we talked about the counterweight, God's counterweight of forgiveness, right? The counteracts the impulses to get revenge, to hold on to hurt and brokenness, and to pay people back, right? We need God's counterweight of forgiveness to offset that. And this morning, we're uh, going to continue this series by talking about the counterweight of self-control. The counterweight of self-control. And I almost put a man on the door back there to keep us from running out because self-control is one of those issues that we all have a problem with. And I try real hard, I try real hard to just put together a Thanksgiving message, you know, to talk about Thanksgiving and to talk about gratitude. You know, I've already done the research on that. I mean, we've got pages and pages of notes on that subject, and it just would have been an easy week for me, but the Lord wouldn't let me go down that route. He wanted me to talk about self-control, mainly because that's an area where we all struggle, but specifically because it's an area where your pastor struggles. Self-control. I know you thought that I was just a perfect spiritual specimen, that I don't struggle at all. And I'm just here to tell you that that's not entirely true. It's kind of true, but it's not completely true. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes your pastor lacks self-control. And self-control in a nutshell is this. There's all sorts of definitions that we could pull out. But self-control in a nutshell is this. Learning to say yes to what we need to say yes to. And learning to say no to the things that we need to say no to. I'll say it again. Self-control in a nutshell is learning and practically saying yes to the things that we need to say yes to. And no to the things that we need to say no to all to and for the greater glory of God. That's the goal. It's not just to discipline ourselves just so that we can be these pillars of the community and people can look at us and say, man, that guy has got it together. No, we learn to say yes to what we need to say yes to and no to what we need to say no to for the greater glory of God because we're people that are just dripping with divine purpose. And our main purpose is to serve the living God. Amen? So all of this is for the greater glory of God. And self-control especially shows itself in those areas that are difficult. In those situations that are different. 
difficult, right? Don't tell me how much self-control you have when everything is going your way. When people are just treating you so well, when your cupboards are overflowing with food and supply, when the bank account is just overflowing with money because you have so much resource, self-control really doesn't show itself in those situations. I mean, it's not a real indication of whether or not we're walking in self-control or whether we have any mastery over these situations. What really shows up, self-control, really shows up for the most part is in those difficult situations, when we're pressed, when we're stressed, when people are pushing our buttons, self-control. And self-control is a struggle for us. We don't like to talk about it. We don't want to hear about it because it's kind of embarrassing, right? Self-control is embarrassing. Generally speaking, we're aware of the places and the the, the areas of our life where we lack self-control, where we tend to give in, where we tend to fudge the numbers, and it's kind of embarrassing. It's especially embarrassing if you've got it together in other areas of your life. In other words, the the areas of your life where you lack self-control usually stand out like a sore thumb, specifically if you have it together in other areas of your life. And many of us are good at certain things, but terrible at certain things. We exercise impeccable self-control in some areas, but there are certain areas, man, where we just can't seem to get it right. We always tend to struggle. And self-control is also a struggle. It's also a hot-button issue. It's a difficult subject to talk about because we've listened to the lie of the enemy. One of the enemy's favorite lies is that we're the only ones struggling with it. We're the only one that lacks self-control in that particular area. And I'm looking around the room, and you guys are going, yep, yep. I mean, Satan has just a short list of his favorite lies. At the very top of that list is God doesn't love you. Somewhere near the top is you're the only person struggling with that. You better, you better be quiet about that. You better hide that. Okay? Don't get any help for that. Don't go up and get prayer for that. Don't share that with the mini group. Don't share that with the small group because you're the only one struggling with that. Well, that's certainly not true. Usually of anything that the enemy lies to you about as it relates to that. But it's especially not true as it relates to the subject of self-control. All of my heroes of the faith outside of Jesus Christ himself had issues with self-control. Search the scriptures, Old Testament and New. The disciples... King David, son Solomon, the list goes on and on and on. Mighty men of God, used in great power. Those that walked with Jesus were his firsthand disciples. These guys had issues with self-control. They had issues with impulse control, right? And even my, you know, my mentors and my, my role models that I currently have, people that I can actually put my hands on, actually talk to, all the ones that I have struggle in this area to some degree. And I, in fact, I don't trust anybody who tells me that they don't struggle in this area. John Wimmer, the founder of the venue, was, was, was famous for saying, never trust a leader without a limp. In other words, somebody's trying to hide their limp, you watch out for those jokers and you stay away from them. But all of my heroes of the faith have, issue, have, have had issues and struggled and wrestled with self-control. And listen, this gives me hope. That doesn't make me, you put me in despair. That gives me hope because a guy like me can still be used of God. I can still make it and I can still walk across the finish line successfully even in the midst of my struggles with self-control. My favorite role model outside of Jesus, that is, is the Apostle Paul. And if you look at Paul's letters and you look at his life, as the scriptures give us a picture of it, you see that Paul struggled with this issue. Romans chapter 7, Paul lays it out uh, very plainly for us, starting in verse 14. Paul says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. Paul says, I'm the problem, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. He continues, I don't really understand myself. This sounds like I could have wrote this. I don't really understand myself, he says, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives within me that is in my sinful nature, verse 18, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Any of us in this room could have written this passage. We can just sort of sign this thing at the bottom. And what is Paul talking about? He's talking about something that we call our sin nature. Our sin nature. Okay? Now, this doesn't get us off the hook. This doesn't take away our personal responsibility to lean into faith. And to lean into the things that God tells us to do and lean into the lifestyle that he prescribes for us in scripture. But it does give us some, some insight into the reality that our very origins, our very origins are rooted in sinfulness 
and selfishness. You come out of the box that way. So if you think for a second that you're not going to have to willfully lean into the things of God, willfully lean into some areas where you're controlling your impulses through the power of the Holy Spirit, then you, you've sadly mistaken. And you'll live an, unsuc- excuse me, an unsuccessful life. You won't thrive. You'll just sort of barely make it. You may drag yourself over, you know, through the gates of heaven. You just may barely make it. But you won't live a functional, thriving life on this side of heaven. And I don't know about you, but I, I, that's, that, that seems like a miserable existence to me. I don't just want to make it. I don't want to just sort of drag through life. Listen, I want, to, I want to have some victory in my life. I want to be an overcomer. I want to be a person that somebody says, you know what? If I just pattern my life after what that guy is doing, I'll be okay. Because I'm patterning my life after Jesus. So we're talking about self-control, right? Paul says, listen, I, listen, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong with me. He's talking about the sin nature, right? And we need this counterweight of God's gift of self-control in order to balance this thing out. Otherwise, we won't make it. And let me just, go, let me just say this to you today. What I'm talking about is not self-help. We don't preach that here. We, we, you know, we, we preach Jesus' help here. This isn't self-help. This is not an instruction on how you can just bootstrap this thing because if you and I could do that, we'd, we'd have done it by now. Okay? So this isn't self-help. So because we need self-control... Because we desperately need it, otherwise we won't make it, we have to ask ourselves, where does self-control come from? Where do I get it? Where does it come from? Well, that's, that's the easiest question I've ever been answered. Self-control is a gift from God. Self-control comes from God. Second Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and and self-discipline or self-control. The old King James says a sound mind. I like that language, but I especially like this. Uh, you know, fear doesn't come from God. Timidity doesn't come from God. But power comes from him. Love. And look, we see self-discipline. Self-control. Self-control. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 23. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I had before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he continues in verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and look at there, self-control. Self-control. And who's the giver of this gift? God the Father is. Where does self-control originate? It originates with God the Father. Where do these fruit of the Spirit come from? Well, they come from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is God's Spirit, the very essence, His nature deposited on the inside of every believer. And when we lean into these things and we activate these things in our life, the fruit, the external fruit that grows on our tree is what? All these things that He named. Not the least of which is self-control. So whenever I'm having bouts of uh, a lack of self-control and when I'm just being swayed by things and I'm just given to things, it's an indication that the Spirit is not really that, that much at work in my life. That I need to lean into this thing more. I need to seek some things more. Maybe I'm inviting things into my life and my space that are speaking louder and more influential in my heart than the character and the nature of God's Holy Spirit. When I lack these things that the Spirit produces, it's a red flag for me. I said, listen, i got to do a fruit inspection here. What's growing on the tree of my life? What I want to see at every turn in my life and every turn in my heart, especially for the purposes of what we talk about today, is self-control. Self-control. So now that we know where self-control, what it is and where it comes from, the burning question that we have is how do we put this to play in our lives? How do we activate this? How do we lean into this today? So that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start at verse 13. And we'll go through verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your roads. And you can actually take those Bibles if you don't have one at home. But we're going to look at that today. The scriptures will be projected on the screen. How do we activate this? It comes from God. We know we need it. 
How do we activate it? How do we walk it out? Before I begin, let me just pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your gospel, Lord. Thank you for all the precious gifts that you give us. Um, And these gifts aren't given to us just to make us smile and feel warm inside, Lord. But these are functional gifts, functional things that you give us so that we can be who you've called us to be. So that we can do, Lord, what you've called us to do. So, Lord, help us lean into these things today. Help us activate, Lord, this gift that you've given us. And help us walk it out in our lives, Lord, so that we can thrive and not just survive. Would you put power, Lord, on these words that you've given me to speak? Lord, would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that I can just uh, be your hands and feet and just uh, be your mouthpiece this morning? Uh, God, uh, be with us this morning as we examine your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, I will start at verse 13. Since we're starting sort of in the middle of that chapter, it's important that we understand that who Peter is, is talking to. Peter is talking to uh, what he refers in the verse, opening verses of this chapter as foreigners uh, in the land. In other words, he's writing this uh, letter to uh, God's people. Right, followers of Jesus who don't happen to be living in the you know the religious places or the, the the you know Jerusalem or the places where God's culture and His standard is the main thing. Right, Peter is talking to people who are living as foreigners in the land. In other words, the culture and the lifestyles of the land aren't necessarily God-centered or Christ-centered. Right. So this is very important to understand this that Paul is talking about who he's talking to. And uh, we'll unpack how that relates to us after I read this passage. So, First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen. So, think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. So Peter's writing this letter to God's chosen people. He's already identified them as foreigners in the place where they're living. So Peter's saying, listen, listen, you've been set apart. God has chosen you. You're different. You have a hope and a future that the people around you don't particularly have. And because of that, you're different. And because you're different, you're required to live different. If you want to have access to what God has for you, if you want to live the life that God has for you, you, you're to live different. So he gives him, he gives these folks these instructions. And as we read, read between the lines of this and even read explicitly, what Peter's basically saying is, listen, control yourself. Control yourself. You won't access the promises of God just living willy-nilly. Just sort of just having this ambient disposition. I'll just live and go where the wind takes me. I'll see what my mood is tomorrow and then I'll, I'll live accordingly or I'll go to this booth or that booth and see what they have to say. And maybe they might give me some instructions for how to live my life. Oh, let me just look at the winds and the waves of the culture and just let me, let me just go along the lazy river of life and culture. Peter's saying, listen, if you do that, you're going to be jacked up. He, he refers to them as foreigners. And I just want just to make sure you understand that you also are a foreigner living in this land. You say, no, I, have, you know, I was born here. I can show you my papers. Not quite what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. The kingdom of God is not a you know, geographical uh, uh, place. It's not a, a political sphere. It's what we call a, dy- it's a dynamic realm in which God is in charge. You can't touch the kingdom of God, right? You can't, you know, put it in your GPS, right? But basically what happens, Jesus invites us into the kingdom of God. He invites us into this sphere where, where God is the ruler. And he says, listen, if you believe this gospel message, if you want to have access to this hope, come and follow me. And I will seat me on the throne of your heart. Let me call the shots. And that sphere is the kingdom of God. And along with the kingdom of God comes a certain lifestyle, comes certain principles. There comes certain prohibitions, things that God asks us to do and things that he asks us to refrain from doing. And we as followers of Jesus have to engage that on a, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, and some of us on a minutely basis because we're so prone to wander. So prone to do our own thing. 
So Peter says, listen, you guys are different. You're, you're foreigners living in this land, and so are we, man. This Western culture that we live in, and many would say, no, we're a nation that founded on Christian principles. Well, we, we may have been a long time ago, but, you know, I watch the news every day. And I read the paper. And, you know, we've slipped from that. We've slipped very far from that. So I still believe that this is the greatest nation on the, uh, on the planet, but I, I feel that it's far. I feel that it's far from Christian. I feel that the culture is far from Christ-centered. And because of that reality, we ought to be aware of that and understand that we live according to a different standard. We live according to different principles. And as such, if we want to have victory and fruitfulness in our life, we just have to live differently. And Peter gives us, in these three short, excuse me, four short verses, uh, some tools to exercise self-control in the midst of living as foreigners in this strange place. And I'm just going to run through these three things, and I'm going to get super practical at the end here. The first thing I see that Peter tells us is to think about tomorrow. Think about tomorrow. Think about tomorrow. And this is something that really escapes us in this present culture. You know, we are right now culture. We are, you know, if it feels good right now, then do it. What's the indication that this is sound judgment? Um, does it feel right? Yeah, then it must be good. <laughs> How do I know that I'm on the right track, right? Now, does it feel good to you? Does it make you ooh and ah? Yeah, well, that must be it. Well, that's not quite how it works. It's not quite how it works. So when, you take, when we take in what Peter has to say to these foreigners living in these pagan cultures, he says, think about tomorrow. The key words being think and tomorrow. Verse 13, so think clearly and exercise self-control. How do we do that? Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. I love this whole idea about thinking clearly. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we, you know, submit ourselves to Jesus um, as living sacrifices and we let him change us by changing the way we think. By having, giving us a measure of sobriety and clarity to our thinking so that we can see life through clear lenses. So Peter says, listen, think clearly, exercise self-control. Do that by looking forward to the gracious salvation. That means understanding that there's more to this life than what sits between the bookends of your natural birth and your natural death. There's more to this life than what lies between the bookends of your natural birth and your natural death. And this is one of the major differences. One of the distinguishing marks of followers of Jesus is that we understand that there's more to this life than this life on this earth. This is why death doesn't freak us out like it freaks everybody else out. Listen, when we mourn and we cry and we weep and we miss people, but for those of us that know there's something on the other end of this thing, that there's more to this life, well, we live a little bit differently. And the, uh, Paul says that we don't mourn like people who don't have hope because we know that there's something, especially for the believer, on the other end of this thing, right? In the same way in our decisions that we make every day. We know that we're going to have to answer to the, the, the author and the finisher of all this stuff. We know that our slate isn't just wiped clean when we die, but that it continues on to the next life. And will we spend eternity with the Father, or we'll spend eternity apart from Him. And that reality governs our actions. That reality governs our decisions. That, that, that the reality causes us to live as citizens of heaven, and not so much just citizens of this earth here. It makes a difference for us. It makes a difference. We look forward to Christ's return. But not only do we look forward to Christ's return, we look forward to tomorrow. In other words, we choose and we decide and we live and we act and we speak and we interact, not just in the light of how we feel right now or what's going on right now, but we're always asking, how is what I'm doing right now going to impact my tomorrow? How is what I'm going to say right now going to impact my tomorrow, or better yet, somebody else's tomorrow. We look beyond today. 
in the places and the areas where I've gotten in the most trouble in my own personal life is those times and those areas and those spaces in my life where I was only preoccupied with what's happening right now. I've hurt people and I've said things and I, man, that was really, that was really, that was a really good comeback. And I was only thinking about saving face right now. I didn't think about how those words would echo in their minds over and over for years and years. I was only thinking about today. And some of the, the deepest troubles and the deepest pits that you've dug for yourself are times and instances where you were only thinking about how this is going to feel right now. And one of the things that I'm fond of saying is, why don't you fast, fast, fast forward the tape? Self-control will always ask you to fast forward the tape before you sign that thing. Fast forward the tape. How does this play out? How does this play out? Before you check into that hotel room, fast forward the tape. How is that going to play out? Before you consume that, before you buy that, before you sign that credit uh, receipt or that application, it doesn't stop, stop. Fast forward the tape. How does it play out? How does this work in the scheme of eternity? What, what's God going to say about this decision when you stand before him and give it account? What's tomorrow going to hold as a result of what you've said and what you've done today? Fast forward the tape. Look at tomorrow. If you want to be a person that's filled with the, this, and this has a fruit of self-control going in your life, this is one of the things that we do. We think about tomorrow. Think about tomorrow. And this plays out in every aspect of life. Our eating, our health habits, our spending, our relationships, whether or not we lean into faith. I know you don't feel like coming to church right now. I, I know you don't. You were up late last night. You know, you got that thing to go to this afternoon. You know, you haven't got the kids' outfits. Out, but, but you're thinking about just, you're just thinking about right now. So let's fast forward the tape. Let me just camp out here for a second. Let me just camp out here for a second. For a personal example from my own life. I remember sitting in my dorm room. Sitting in my dorm room. First night at college. And what was going through my mind was this. As a, as a preacher's kid who's gone to church my whole life. Raised in a Christian home. Am I going to go out here and try to sow my oats and see what I've missed out on, on the, you know, this 18 years of my life, or I'm going to continue on the path and follow Jesus. That was literally the thought that consumed my mind the night my parents dropped me off at church. At school. And do you know what happened? You know what I decided? You know why I'm standing here today? Because even though I haven't gotten things perfect, I decided, you know what? It feels kind of odd to just kind of stray from the path. You know, not going to church and not being in the Christian community, those sorts of things, that feels kind of odd to me. And because it felt odd to me, it deeply impacted my, my trajectory as it relates to where I am today. And it will deeply impact my children's future. Now, let's rewind the tape. Where did that start? It started with my parents taking my, my, our, uh, faith seriously. Somebody had to be dead or dying to not go to church. Somebody had, and even some of those times, they'd be just sort of say, well, listen, you come in, we're going to take you up for prayer afterwards. But we go to church in this house. We're going to lean into faith. We're going to have Bible studies. We're going to pray in front of our meals. Those things my parents did religiously every single day. It was almost instinct for them. And because of those decisions, when they fast forward the tape of my life and my siblings and my children and their children, it will have deep, deep impacts. Deep, deep impacts. And that's just one example of how the discipline of self-control and doing what they were supposed to do had far-reaching implications, not just in their own life, but in ours and generations and generations to come. And who knows the people that we've touched because my parents said yes to God and lived the life in front of us. You see what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, it's not about how you're feeling. It's not about right now. It's about what am I supposed to be doing? What needs to be done? And you can apply this to any scenario in your life, any scenario at all. How is this going to play out? What about tomorrow? The other thing that Peter tells us as we just sort of jog through this passage is to be obedient. He told us to think about tomorrow, 
But he also told us to be obedient. Obedience is simply doing what God said to do. I'm sure there's fancier definitions. But obedience is simply doing what God said to do when he said to do it. Verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your own ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. Now this speaks volumes to us today. Peter knows that he's talking to converts. He knows that he's talking about pe- talking to people who have been submerged in a culture that is not godly and who, who have come out of that and who've made conscious decisions to follow Jesus and to live differently and to swim against the current of the culture. He understands this, who he's talking to. But he says, listen, the key to, 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 to thriving in this thing is to be obedient. We've already talked about thinking clearly and looking forward. The next step is just do, do what God says to do. Because many of us um, didn't know what to do in, uh, until we were introduced to the gospel. You know, I took it for granted that there were adults who had never stepped foot in church. Until I started pastoring, I'm saying, surely there's nobody that's a grown-up that's not been to church somewhere, somehow. Clearly, you, you've been to a wedding, you've been to a funeral, you've been to something, man. Now, this just comes from a person who spent, you know, went to church four or five times a week. But as a pastor, I encounter people who say, man, you know, I've never been to church in my life. And that's why we don't assume things. I used to say things like, we all know the story of Jonah, you know, so I don't need to get into that. Or we know, all know about Adam. Some people have no idea about any of that stuff. And so they came into Christian community. So Peter assumes that these guys didn't particularly know what to do until they encountered the gospel. Until they encounter God's standard and his principles, right? But we understand that we're kind of clueless to this. And since we're clueless, we need to really adhere to what God says. Don't try to wing it. Don't try to make it up. Don't try to infer. Get yourself a Bible. Sit your behind in the seat and listen to God's word. And don't just be hearers of it, the scripture says, but to be doers of it. Be obedient. And Peter says, I know beforehand you didn't know any better. You were making a fool of yourself. You were running amok. You were just barely hanging on. And that was kind of okay back then because you didn't know any better. Now you know you're expected to do. Now you've heard you're expected to respond. And this charge to be obedient is a game changer from us. For, for us, excuse me. Takes us out of the realm of just, just floating through life. And it takes us to a place where we are given the opportunity to specifically respond to what God says for us to do. Specifically lean away from the things that God says to stay away from. This is a game changer for us. And obedience shouldn't be swayed or influenced by your feelings. Obedience isn't circumstantial. Obedience shouldn't be, you know, moved and swayed by emotional factors or the behaviors of others. Or which side of the bed you got out on, you know, any given morning. Obedience is, 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 is adhering to the principles and the standards of God's word and living them out each and every day. There's no self-control without those. There's no self-control without those. Obedience sets the standard and demands that we build our life around God's stuff. Followers of Jesus, we build our life around God's stuff. And God's standard is immovable. So if you're motoring full speed ahead and you're coming up to God's standard, you don't, you don't just nudge it out of the way. No, you redirect. That's how immovable this is. That's how obedience works. And some of you say, man, I'm not a very obedient person. I, would, I beg to differ. We're all very obedient to something. <laughs> We're all extremely and faithfully obedient to something. And some of us knows the things that we're worshiping and we're moving on the path and on the trajectory of faith. And we're going along. We've had weeks, we have months, we have years of success. And we're just living in the sweetness of God's grace and his mercy and his favor. But when that thing calls you, you'll come. When that thing calls you, you'll come. You'll obey it. Listen, you just left the worship service. You just, I mean, there's just a little space between you and the ground. You're floating because you're in the glory. 
and homeboy calls you and says, hey, why don't you come over tonight? Just left service. There's a glow on your face. You're speaking in tongues as you drive home. But homeboy calls you and says, hey, why don't you come over? We didn't do anything. We just watch a movie. And when you say, okay, I'm on my way over. Because when that thing calls, you go for it. Right? You've had, you've had a plate and a half, and, you know, you're full and you're satisfied. But, you know, that slice of cake, it just calls to you from the refrigerator. It just calls you, Gino, you know, you want some more? And he said, no, I've had enough. And it just calls you and calls you and calls you. But when that thing calls, you say, well, I guess I got to do it. You just balance your checkbook. You've got more, you know, month than money. There's a lot of red ink everywhere pink notices all over the place and you say listen we gotta buckle down and then your commercial comes on TV that shiny thing whatever it is fill in the blank and here you are you're making arrangements that thing called you and you obeyed it sink deeper in debt list goes on and on the examples are endless we're obedient to something and the goal of the Christian is to be obedient to God and God alone now, there's some things in life that don't, that don't run counter to what God says to do. And I think there's a neutral zone where, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. But in so much as something runs against the grain of what God said universally for us not to do, or he's told you specifically not to do it, then we got an issue. And the Bible calls those things that we obey idols. Idols. I know you thought an idol was this sort of shadow, shadowy little ornament thing that sort of is in a, somebody's room surrounded by candles that you sort of chant at, you know? That's an idol. But an idol is anything that is above God on the list of priorities in your life. In other words, God's he's at the tippy top of the page, just the top of the page. Listen, I couldn't even write anything in there if I wanted to. That's how high God is. On the page. That's anything above him. Any margin above him, that's an idol. And those idols are the things that beckon to you. Those idols are the thing that above all else, against good judgment, against God's counsel, against godly counsel, counsel, you'll answer. You'll go to. You'll run towards. And we've done it over and over and over again. Peter charges us to be obedient. It's a component of self-control. How, how are we deciding what we control ourselves with? God's standard, his principles, his word. And finally, Peter charges us to be holy. To be holy. To be holy. And depending on which church you grew up in, this word is kind of loaded. Say, so take out a sheet of paper and write down the definition of holy, pass it in. If I read them, you know, we'd be, we'd be here all day with different answers. Some of us think that holiness is how we dress, right? No makeup. You know, no fun. That's holiness. Some of us think it's ornaments. Listen, I've got to find the biggest cross medallion and put that thing on, and that's holy. I've got to find the biggest Bible that I need, like, some luggage wheels on it. To pull it around with me, that's holy. That's what makes God sort of peer over his chair and go, man, that's the big Bible, man. You think holiness is, is our language and how we speak and the words that we can string together to be impressive before holy God. That's not holiness at all. Holiness simply means that you've been set apart. You've been designated. You've been earmarked for something else. That you don't belong to this world, that you belong to God. That's what it means to be holy. And as such, we live according to what we've been set apart and set aside for. That's the essence of holiness. And Peter says this, verse 15, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. Peter didn't pull this out of his hat. This is the words of God. It demands that we be holy. That we be righteous, that we be set apart. And something changes within us when we realize that we're not our own. You handle things differently when they're not your stuff. 
I just think about how I hold my kids, my, my, my babies. I got three boys, five, two, and three months. Listen, man, I'm throwing these kids around. They love it. I mean, we're seconds away from being paralyzed, but they love it. You know, I throw them across the room, and they just come back. I throw them. Somebody hits their head on the glass table. There's blood, but they come back, and they just want to play some more. And I love it. But somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Pastor, what, you want to hold my baby? And I say, okay. Kid gloves, man, because I can't replace anybody's kids. I would offer you one of mine, but you'd probably bring them back. When I'm holding somebody else's kid, when I'm watching somebody else's stuff, when I'm in possession of somebody else's property, there's something different about handling something else, something that's not mine. We just have a different disposition toward things that aren't ours. And there's something about understanding that our lives are not our own. We just live differently. We just don't, we don't live so recklessly. We give a little more thought to the things that we do. We give a little more thought to how we handle and how we steward this stuff because it's not ours. And our understanding of what it means to be holy and what it means to be designated, what it means to be the God's property, is essentially means we don't just get to do whatever we want to do with God's stuff. We don't get to just play fast and loose with his stuff because it doesn't belong to us. We're not our own. We hear that language over and over in the scriptures. All of a sudden, we have to think differently. Something happens inside of us, when we, and when it finally clicks that we, we, we belong to a, to a master, right? We're stewarding things that don't belong to us. And this master is shrewd. He's mindful. He's astute. He's sharp. He's taking note of everything. Nothing gets by him. No amount of slickness can get by God's keen eye. He's observant. Something changes within us when we realize that every single decision counts. And some of you have never heard that before. That every decision counts. Every decision counts, man. Every decision, financial decision, guess what? It counts. Because we're supposed to live for the greater glory of God. If you think that God doesn't care what you do with your money, listen, come talk to me. I'll give you a Bible. And I'll show you some places where God says, listen, that your money, that, that's my money. What you do with your money shows me where your heart is. How you steward these finances, that shows me, you know, a whole lot about yourself. Every decision counts. What we do with this body, what we do with this body, how we take care of it, how we feed it, how we nurture it, how we exercise it, it matters. Those decisions matter. The relationships that God has given us, those are gifts from him. It matters what we do with those. The decisions that we make as it relates to our relationship and has implications uh, as it relates to our sexuality and what we do with our bodies. All of that stuff matters. All of it. Our job, our vocation, all of it matters. And self-control and holiness go hand in hand because we're, we, our hearts cry, I dare not mishandle God's stuff. I dare not misuse or mistreat God's stuff. I dare not misuse my money. I dare not misuse my sexuality. I dare not misuse my body, my relationships, my kids, my spouse. I dare not misuse it and abuse it because it's all his. We've been set apart, designated for him. Peter says, be holy. Be holy. And it's nearly impossible to have these things in clear view before we make each and every decision and come out on the wrong end of it. This is what Jesus did. We say, oh, Jesus lived a sinless life because he was God. But we need not forget that he took off of his godness and basically shows us an example of what it looks like if we as humans took seriously the charge to be holy. We were full of the spirit and we walked in that every day. Basically, Jesus is the example of that. Jesus had impeccable self-control. It didn't sort of tiptoe across the line. How close to the line can I get, you know, before I'm in the danger zone? Preacher, can you write us a manual of, you know, what line that we need to get right up to before it's a sin? 
You laugh, but I get those questions all the time. No, Jesus walked in self-control. Okay? So how do we walk this out? Real quick, I want to get super practical with this, especially as we head into Thanksgiving, uh, the Thanksgiving week. With these pressures of all this stuff sort of weigh down on us. You were dealing with family members, and some of you have family members that just make you itch, you know. Just get anxious just knowing that, you know, Aunt Susie's going to be in the room, right? And you need every ounce of the Holy Spirit to keep you just from slapping somebody, right? Black Friday's coming up, and, you know, you just, you just feel like the money's starting to burn a hole in your pocket. So let's get super practical as it relates to this self-control, especially as we lean into the holidays. First, let me start with our, uh, uh, um, self-control as it relates to our life with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we just came through the Spiritual Disciplines series. If you missed that, just log on to our website, and those are there. But listen, man, you think that we don't need self-control to lean into faith, to lean into devotion? And to meet with God every day and to have a life submitted to Jesus where we're going to him for daily bread and getting our next, you know, get our sustenance and getting our orders and getting direction. You don't think that takes self-control? Guess what? It does. And many of us, I didn't say many of you, I said many of us lack the discipline and thus we live kind of raggedy lives. We have good weeks and we have bad weeks, but generally speaking, we're disconnected from the vine. And our only job is to abide in in him. So I say to you that the self-control plays out in our life with Jesus. When's the last time you carved out some time, regular time to meet with the Lord? When's the last time you say, nothing will come between me and God at this hour of the day? Maybe it moves around depending on your schedule, but I'm going to meet with Jesus. I'm going to see what he has for me. I'm going to show him that he's valuable and that I need what he has to offer. I'm going to deny myself whatever is calling out to me, and I'm going to meet with Jesus. I'm going to meet with God. Again, more on that with the spiritual discipline series. But let's get super practical. Our health. Our health. Okay? So you feel, oh, I mean, I'm a husky guy, man. I got some work to do in this area. I love to eat. Love to eat. Love good food, man. And I struggle with my weight nearly my, my entire life. And let me just tell you something, man. If you think that God doesn't care about this body that he gave you, if you think that it's okay to be a person of faith, to have self-control in other areas and to turn your nose at other offenses and other indulgences that you see and neglect the very body that God gave us. Listen, you have another thing coming. Another thing coming. And in the church world, we just have all this license to just overeat and nobody wants to talk about a bunch of chubby Christians. And I, Really quick, I just had to say it really nicely. We're shaving years off of our lives. We're setting terrible examples for our children to follow. We're setting their eating habits. We're setting their exercise habits. And that's especially pronounced around the holidays because some reason, we just say, you know what? We can go nuts and we can eat a week's worth of food in a day because that's what we do at Thanksgiving. I think it ought to be different for Christians. And I speak to myself. I think it ought to be different for us. I think it ought to be different for us. So the question to you is, how are you knowing that it matters what you do with your body? It matters what you do uh, as it relates to your food consumption. And your, it matters as it relates to your witness for the gospel. How much you consume, and how much you eat, and what foods you eat. How, how, how is that going to impact this week? going to impact your decisions on what you scoop on your plate or how many plates you get or what type of foods you consume. It's got to make a difference. It's got to make a difference. And I know Tony joked about, you know, stuffing our faces because we get to run the next day. I think running the next day is fantastic. I think I plan to be there and I plan to win. By win, I mean come in, you know, around a hundredth place or so. But I promise you that I'll eat differently this holiday season. I promise you. And I challenge you all to do the same. I challenge you to do the same. I challenge you to get serious about your eating. I challenge you to get serious about weight loss and exercise. It matters. It matters. If we fast forward the tape, 
It matters. It matters. What about our finances? Self-control and our finances. And some of us are fit. You eat whatever you want and you won't gain a pound. In fact, you lose weight when you eat. God bless you, by the way. (laughs) Right? But your finances are a mess. Finances are a mess. And we're not measuring your worth or your worthiness by your wealth. You know, we're all different people. We all have different educational backgrounds, different skill sets. So, you know, it will vary what we make. I'm talking about living within your means. And this is so important because we live in a culture where it seems like the goal is to appear richer than you are. To appear more well off than you are. And pardon me if I can say this, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. That makes no sense to me. For a person who doesn't have basic necessities, who, are in, who is in the hole, drowning in debt, to continue to pile on top of that more consumer debt. Do you realize you're, you're, you have less to offer your children? You realize you, 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 you're setting their standard for saving and spending? You realize that you're, you're, you're setting their standard for what, 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 what followers of Christ do with their money? And I know somebody told you that Christians are supposed to be rich and we're supposed to live it up and we're supposed to drive big cars and big houses. Listen, I don't see that in here. Don't point to Solomon and all that. He was a king. That's kind of different, you know? It's kind of different. Don't show me any scriptures of any kings being wealthy in the Bible. I might laugh at you. But the goal is to live within your means, to be smart with your money, to exercise some self-control. And we go crazy with this around the holidays because somehow we just unplug. Doesn't it just seem like a natural thing? Okay, listen, we won't do this any other time of the year, but let's drop 10 grand, you know, in a month's time on Christmas presents that's going to end up in the basement under something. I'm saying, Peter says, listen, think clearly. And I'm saying, think clearly, think about tomorrow, fast forward the tape. Fast forward the tape. Don't just think about that pop that you're going to get when you unpack that thing or when you drive that thing off the showroom floor or when you're, you know, you're playing with that thing that's exciting. Listen, fast forward the tape. You're going to spend 10 grand. Guess what? You're going to end up paying in interest when you fall behind in that. You're going to pay 40 grand. Fast forward the tape. So I'm not going to be super prescriptive about what you do with your money. I'm just saying be wise. Be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. And listen, I, I feel like the Lord wants us to lean into generosity in a season like this. And to give a meaningful gifts to people who are in need. That doesn't mean you don't give reasonable gifts to the people in your family. But listen, man, there's some folks that are really hurting. Some folks that really might not get a decent meal on Thanksgiving. And I think what we're charged to do as followers of Christ is turn our eyes away from us and look outward. It's been such a meaningful exercise for my family and I to join my mother, uh, my, my extended family, and her church and going to serve at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the kitchen, at the shelter on the north side each and every Thanksgiving. We have our meal, but we do it after we go and spend a couple of hours serving, praying for, and blessing the poor. It's an it's a, it experience that I want my kids to see. And I want them to take the plates and I want them to take the pops over to people who look like life has just dealt them a terrible hand. And to see the the joy on their face, man, when somebody serves them and doesn't talk down to them and says, listen, can I get you something else? You want some more cranberries? When I turn that out on somebody else, there's something about that, man, that makes you come alive. There's something about that that lets you know you're doing what God wired you to do. Something feel right about that. And the only thing that feels right about spending a whole lot of money on yourself is a little pop you get out of having that stuff however long the enjoyment lasts. But I think there are major implications on self-control and generosity. What will you do with your resource this holiday season? What will you do with your time? How will you turn it away from you and, and, and spill out of the overflow of what God has already given you? How will you do that this, this season? I'll leave that up to you. And God, what about our relationships, self-control in our relationships? I'm talking about the people, man, the people that God has put in your life. 
Some of them, we put money way high. We put all this stuff way high. But what's really important, what's really important is people. Other people, man. What's really important are the people that God drops in your life. And how you steward those people, how you exercise self-control in your relationships will make the difference for many of us of whether or not we thrive or just survive. How you treat your wife. You just, you just treat her however you want to treat her. How you treat your husband. You just do whatever you want to do. How do you treat your kids? You just, are they just accessories? Are they just people you, you know, entertain when you're feeling good and you just want to spread, spread some good cheer? Or do you say, you know, no, God has charged me to love these folks and show them love and show them consideration and be the face of God to them every single day of their life. Do you take that disposition? If you do, then it, then it, then it, then it, then it impacts your behavior. It impacts how you interact with them. How are we going to be self-controlled in our relationships? And some of you are thinking about relationships even now. Some of you are sitting next to the person that you've got to be a better steward with. Some of you are sitting next to people and you say, man, I, I have had no self-control as it relates to my how I interact with my children or how I interact with my friends or how I interact with my husband, my extended family. And this is especially true as we enter the holiday season. Some of you are going to interact with people you just don't like. You haven't seen them since this time last year and you don't mind. But we're foreigners in this land We live by a different set of principles. We live by a different code. And whenever they see you, they are seeing Jesus. At least they should. And this holiday season, this week, some of us are just kind of have to really think long and hard about how we interact, our disposition. Right? Some of you just might have to stand in the corner and just be quiet. That's the only way you can get through the holidays without offending somebody and offending God. Then that's what you do. Because it matters. It matters. And lastly, um, our words. Self-control in our words. And this plays into relationships. Our words. Some of you just say whatever comes to your mind. Some of us, I'm saying. Just come, whatever comes from, whatever I'm feeling right now, I, I just say it. That's how I feel. I, I just keep it real. People know me. They know I just keep it real. No, you're a jerk. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference. And everything that we say as followers of Jesus, as foreigners in this land, ought to glorify God. I'm not saying you need to be singing worship songs at, you know, at the family gathering. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Or, you know, I was just reading in 1 Timothy the other day. Everybody turned down. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your speech and how you talk ought to edify people and not tear them down. And I wish I could talk to all the Facebook preachers out there that don't understand that everything we're supposed to do and say and type is supposed to be for the greater glory of God. And if we truly understood that, we would shut our mouths or we would delete that status. Or some of us just need to, you know, disconnect our pages. Our words, they matter. And long after you realize that you've said something stupid, those words have been dispatched. And they, they just ricochet in the hearts of people just like a bullet and just do all kinds of damage. Some of you have things in your mind right now that somebody said to you. That your parents have said to you. That your wife has said to you. They've apologized. They're sincerely wrong about it. But it still impacts you today. And I'm just saying, before you say those things, fast forward the tape. What is this, what is this going to accomplish? What is this going to do? How might I exercise self-control and understand that I'm a steward of my words? How might I do that to live differently? Worship team, you can come up. I know I've gone a little bit long today, but I want you to get this. Self-control, it's an important, there I say, necessary counterweight. And if we don't get a handle on this thing, listen, we won't do what God has called us to do. We won't be who he's called us to be. So I hope you all accept the challenge to be people of self-control. Live according to God's standard as foreigners in this, in this land. And I'm interested in hearing after this week how it plays out. If you were successful or if you need to go back to remedial, you know, self-control school. 
But I'm going to be praying for you, and you pray for me that we can be successful. And this not just be something we do this week, but this is a lifestyle of self-control. And we'll see all the fruit that comes from it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. God, I know it cuts us sometimes. And Lord, I know it's difficult for us to hear. But Lord, you want us to be free. You want us to thrive and not just survive. And for those of us, Lord, who really lack self-control, these areas of our life, whether it be our eating and our diet, whether it be our finances and our money, whether it be our relationships, Lord, whether it be our vocation, whether it be our time, whether it be our energy, Lord, whether it be our voice and our words, Lord, would you impose your counterweight on the systems of our life, on the systems of our heart, and help us to be victorious, Lord. And may we bear the fruit of your spirit of self-control. And for those who struggle with that today, Lord, those who are just almost anxious going into this week, Lord, and know that they're going to need you, I just pray, Lord, that you would download supernaturally your peace and your presence. Give us your gift, your counterweight of self-control. God, we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.